Chapter 16 is respiratory emergencies. So an introduction, respiratory distress is frightening and can potentially be life-threatening for our patients. And we have to be able to recognize signs and symptoms of respiratory distress and provide immediate intervention if we do recognize it. So respiratory anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, review. Respiratory system consists of upper airways, your lower airways and lungs are part of that. Normal breathing. Remember the normal respiratory rates are very dependent on age. The younger the kid is, the faster they tend to breathe but medical history can play a role in that as well. If they have a history of things like COPD, their resting respiratory rate may be a little bit higher because of that disease. And there are certain findings that are consistent with a person who is breathing adequately on their own. We have to be able to recognize that quickly. Is this patient breathing adequately or not on their own? Abnormal breathing, some conditions that impair gas exchange. And we're going to talk about these uh, with, and tie them with different conditions. Are uh, things that can again impair gas exchange. There's an increased space between the alveoli and the pulmonary capillaries. So again, those capillaries normally butt right up to those that alveoli. But if something's going on and those capillaries are now spread out a little bit, now that gas exchange has a longer distance to cover, so it's, it's going to reduce it. Lack of perfusion of the pulmonary system from the right heart, heart failure, fluid, blood, or pus in the alveoli as well. And again, we're going to talk about these more specifically and what conditions can cause them. So assessing breathing sounds. Auscultation of breath sounds provide additional evidence of breathing difficulty. Oftentimes, it's going to be very evident if the patient's having a hard time breathing. We're going to be able to see that. But listening to those lung sounds, hearing abnormal sounds is going to confirm that the patient's having trouble breathing. And it's also going to give us clues about what could potentially be causing that respiratory distress. So lung sounds are vital to assess in respiratory emergency. To achieve the most accurate breath sounds, it is important to auscultate the, in, the, in the appropriate fashion. And if possible, we want the patient to sit upright, use the larger end of the stethoscope over bare skin to get the best reading or hearing, it needs to be over bare skin. So under the shirt uh, is gonna be the best. In the shirt, in, in practice though, Thin cotton t-shirts, et cetera, does not hinder auscultation of lung sounds too bad. So auscultation of the chest. Anterior chest at the second intercostal space at each midclavicular line. I'm not going to expect you to sit here and count the patient's ribs and get in between that second and third rib. But when we do listen, just make sure you're not placing the middle of the stethoscope directly over a patient's rib, fill those ribs, and do it in between ribs. Now, we do want it in the midclavicular line. 
Auscultate the lateral chest at the fourth and fifth intercostal space at each mid-axillary line. So again, for a more detailed, fuller assessment, we can listen on the ax on the lateral side of the chest as well. Again, just don't place it, try not to place it directly over a rib. And we can also listen in the backs right below the scapulas as well. Again, we're just isolating each individual section of that those lungs to get a full kind of 360 degree account of what those lungs sound like. Abnormal breath sounds that we need to be on the lookout for. You need to know these definitions and how they are described as well, because it will be on your test. So wheezing lung sounds. Sounds like a high-pitched musical sound heard during normally during expiration on more severe cases during inspiration. So if you ever hear the lung sounds being described as a musical sound, they're always referring to wheezing. Wheezing is associated with swelling and constriction of the lower airway. So bronchoconstriction produces wheezing, asthma, COPD. Wheezing is by far the most common lung sound that we're going to get for those conditions. Bronchi is a rattle noise mostly heard in the bronchi, so it's going to be in the, kind of in the upper airways. This is associated with obstructions of the larger airways, filling up with mucus, basically. Crackles and rails, again, those terms are used interchangeably. They are bubbly sounds during inspiration and are associated with fluid in the lungs. And it sounds like a kid blowing into a drink with their straw. The bubbling sound that that makes, that's what it's going to kind of roughly sound like. So again, those are caused by liquids in the lungs. Liquid is going to be dependent on gravity. So with crackles and rails, typically where we hear that first at is going to be in the lower lobes because patients tend to sit up. Fluid is going to kind of accumulate in the lower lobes. That's where we hear the crackles and rails first. With wheezing, on the other hand, we typically hear wheezing in the upper lobes first before we hear it in the lower. Again, some definitions. Again, this was on your last test. Hypoxemia, decreased oxygen in the blood. Hypoxia is decreased oxygen in the cells. Newer terms. Hypercarbia is an increase in carbon dioxide in the blood. So your body is holding on or retaining carbon dioxide. CO2 levels are elevated. Dyspnea is a complaint of shortness of breath. Patient states, I can't breathe, they're complaining of dyspnea. Apnea is the absence of breathing. If the patient is apneic, they're not breathing. They're in respiratory arrest. Tripod position is a very common position we find patients sitting in in respiratory distress. It's where they're leaning forward with their arms and elbows locked and hands on a hard surface, knees, table, there's chair, whatever the case may be, but they're leaning forward with their arms kind of straight, doing whatever they can to help them draw in air.
So we're going to, when we're dealing with respiratory emergencies, we typically classify them into one of three categories. We either classify it as respiratory distress, respiratory failure, or respiratory arrest. So respiratory distress. <clears throat> and we'll go into more detail about the classifications a little bit later. But inadequate, inadequate breathing leads to hypoxemia. Again, that's where the O2 sets less than 94%. And hypercarbia. Remember, it's your breathing that gets rid of CO2. So if we're not breathing very fast, if we're breathing extremely slow, we're not getting in enough oxygen, so our O2 sats are going to drop. We're also not able to breathe off that carbon dioxide, so our CO2 levels are going to start to increase. Hypoxemia can lead to cardiovascular failure and hypoperfusion. And again, untreated, inadequate breathing will lead to death. And again, that's something that we're assessing and treating for in our primary assessment. Patients that are in respiratory distress, things that we tend to see, a complaint of shortness of breath or dyspnea, patients saying, hey, I can't breathe right. That's an indication of trouble breathing. Restlessness, increase or decrease in pulse rating. For adults, our typical first response to respiratory distress is going to be an increase in heart rate. After some time, we may start getting a falling pulse rate. Anytime we have a slow heart rate that is caused by hypoxia, that is again an ominous sign, meaning if we don't treat it, the patient's going to code pretty quickly. Changes in breathing rate or depth. Again, they may be trying to compensate, so they may be breathing extremely fast, trying to draw in as much air as possible. And we can get skin color changes as well. And the most common skin color change is the bluing of the skin or cyanosis. So things that causes respiratory distress. Narrowing of the bronchioles from inflammation, swelling, or bronchoconstriction. If we're getting narrowing of the bronchioles, then a bronchodilator can provide relief. So for us, it's primarily going to be breathing treatments. Somebody is having bronchoconstriction, narrow uh, passageways, we can give them breathing treatment to see if we have any improvement. Injuries to the head, neck, face, spine, chest, or abdomen can also affect their breathing. The head, the brain controls your breathing. We have brain damage, it may affect your breathing. The neck, again, your spinal cord transmits those signals from your brain to your diaphragm and muscles to contract. So if I have a spinal cord injury, that can prevent somebody from breathing. Face injuries, we can have airway obstructions. Chest injuries, remember, we have to have an in, intact chest in order for adequate ventilations to occur. Cardiac compromise, the heart's not beating effectively, may not be able to circulate enough oxygen to the cells, put them in distress, hyperventilation, breathing too fast as well. Some abdominal conditions can cause respiratory issues as well, major trauma to the abdomen, 
Um, even abdominal pain can affect the patient's breathing as well. If it hurts pretty bad for them to take a deep breath in, they're going to breathe shallowly and faster because they don't want to cause that pain. Dysfunction of the respiratory system by mechanical disruption to the airway, lung, or chest wall. Sometimes receptors in the lungs may be stimulated that causes them to constrict, produce mucus, inadequate gas exchange related to a ventilation or perfusion disturbance. Something is preventing enough oxygen to get to the alveoli to be used or on the circulatory side, something is blocking or preventing adequate amounts of blood to get circulated to the alveoli to get oxygenated. Again, so respiratory problems are categorized into one of three ways. It's either going to be categorized as respiratory distress, respiratory failure, or respiratory arrest. And to make make it real short and sweet, we'll go into more detail, but easiest way to remember this or what you, the main point you need to know. In respiratory distress, they're having a hard time breathing, but they are breathing adequately on their own. Respiratory failure, they're still breathing, but they're not breathing adequately enough on their own, meaning we have to ventilate them. In respiratory arrest, they are no longer breathing, so we have to ventilate them. So respiratory distress, they're breathing adequately on their own, so that should tell you that we do not provide BVM or positive pressure ventilations with just simple distress. For failure and arrest, we do ventilate. So both respiratory and failure and respiratory arrest need to be ventilated with the BVM. So respiratory distress, again, they're breathing adequately on their own, so they have an adequate rate and an adequate tidal volume. So again, your body's still trying to correct whatever is, is going on with it, and they're able to compensate for whatever is causing that respiratory distress. Since the patient is breathing adequately on their own, again, they don't need to be ventilated with the BVM, but they are having a hard time breathing, so they do need supplemental oxygen. O2 to maintain O2 sats at or above 94%. And depending on what's causing that respiratory distress or the signs and symptoms that we're seeing, we do need to consider other medication administration that may be indicated for this patient, such as a breathing treatment. For respiratory failure, the rate, tidal volume are both are inadequate. So again, the patient is not breathing adequately on their own but they still are having some spontaneous breathing. In this case, since they're not breathing adequately, we have to breathe for them, assist their ventilations with a BVM, positive pressure ventilations. And again, if we're ventilating a patient with a BVM, the BVM is going to be hooked up to supplemental O2. And just constant monitoring because respiratory failure can quickly move into respiratory arrest. And respiratory arrest, again, the patient is no longer breathing at all. And respiratory arrest will lead to cardiac arrest within a matter of minutes.
And if we notice the patient's not breathing, again, make sure the airway's open, immediately begin positive pressure ventilations with a BVM. All right, so now we're going to move on and we're going to talk about some specific causes of respiratory distresses, the disease processes, and treatments for them. So the first, first up is going to be obstructive pulmonary diseases. There are three diseases that causes or are classified as obstructive pulmonary diseases. That is emphysema, chronic bronchitis, and asthma. Emphysema and chronic bronchitis are considered the two disease processes of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. So if a patient has COPD, they either have emphysema or chronic bronchitis, and emphysema is probably the most common. So emphysema, pathophysiology of emphysema. Lung tissue loses its elasticity due to exposure to toxins. And by far, the most common cause of emphysema is smokers, smoking. In emphysema, the walls of the alveoli itself are getting destroyed. So patient smokes, that toxins get into the alveoli, causes damage to the alveoli. They are losing their elasticity, and we're actually losing surface area in the alveoli as well. So since those alveoli are damaged, that is going to reduce gas exchange. Patients with emphysema, again, often have hard times breathing pretty frequently. And one thing that they may do is they may purse their lips while exhaling. And what they're trying to do with pursed lips is to create their own physiologic PEEP or positive end expiratory pressure, which is going to keep alveoli open longer, allowing more time for gas exchange to occur. So they're trying to do this on their own by pursing their lips when they exhale. And the patient usually, if we're dealing with emphysema, a patient with emphysema and exacerbation, of emphysema, the complaint's probably gonna be respiratory distress. Patients with both COPDs typically get very short of breath upon exertion. So walking, et cetera, typically cause trouble breathing. So in emphysema, on this left side right here, we have a normal bronchial and a normal alveoli. So bronchial is nice and open, and you can see the alveoli looks healthy. In this case, we are getting some mucus production in the alveoli, I'm sorry, in the bronchioles, some constriction in the bronchioles as well. And we're also seeing damage to the alveoli. It's losing its elasticity and it's actually losing some of its surface area. So again, that's gonna dramatically reduce the amount of gas exchange that can occur. So signs and symptoms of a patient suffering from exacerbation of emphysema. These patients tend to be thin barrel chest appearance from chronic air trapping in the alveoli. So it looks like their chest muscles are extremely built and their chest is extremely rounded. We often find these patients 
in the tripod position. They are constantly or chronically having a hard time breathing, so they're chronically using those accessory muscles, so their accessory muscles are going to be pretty developed because of constant use. Emphysema patients tend to cough a lot, but the vast majority of the time when they're coughing, it is a dry cough or very low productive cough. They're not coughing anything up. Prolonged expiration with pursed lips. So they had the nickname as the pink puffer, as a pink puffer. And you'll see why they call them pink puffers when we start talking about chronic bronchitis. And that those terms are kind of used to how we can differentiate between emphysema and chronic bronchitis. <clears throat> Very commonly, if the patient does have emphysema, they're going to be on HOMO2. Now, they may not have it on at all times but they have access to home oxygen in case they need it. Other than that, they tend to have the other typical signs of respiratory distress, increased work of breathing, uh, rap, uh, can have diaphoretic skin, rapid heart rate, et cetera. <clears throat> Again, here's an example of that tripod position. They're leaning, sitting upright, leaning forward with their arms locked on a firm surface. And Again, he's probably having exacerbation of, CH, or of uh, COPD, emphysema. Very commonly, he's having a hard time breathing, and he's actively smoking when we get on scene. So that was emphysema with chronic bronchitis. It is chronic, chronic, chronic bronchitis, chronic irritation, swelling and thickening of the bronchi and bronchial lining. And this results in mucus plugs. Now with chronic bronchitis and the big difference between chronic bronchitis and emphysema is chronic bronchitis does not affect the alveoli. The alveoli are pretty much left alone and are healthy. The chronic bronchitis only affects the bronchial, the bronchioles. Again, just like with emphysema though, chronic bronchitis is associated with smoking. Narrow bronchioles, reduce airflow. And we're getting reduced lung ventilation with increased lung perfusion. Those narrow bronchioles, the mucus production is preventing enough air to get into the alveoli for gas exchange to occur. Again, here's chronic bronchitis. We've got our normal one on the left. On the right, you notice the alveoli looks identical. So the alveoli is left alone during chronic bronchitis. This is something you need to know for your test. The problem again is gonna be in the bronchioles. They are swollen, constricted, and we're getting increase in mucus production. So, sound symptoms. Chronic bronchitis does cough a bunch like emphysema. However, they are typically coughing something up. They're coughing up that mucus that are in their bronchioles. They also tend to have chronic jugular vein distension. So those neck veins are gonna be bulging. The increase in bronchial obstruction, there is a reduction in the residual volume in the lungs that can lead to a bloating appearance of the patient, so the patient looks bloated, and 
cyanotic. So they're typically cyanotic. So we refer to them as the blue bloater. So emphysema is the pink puffer. Chronic bronchitis is the blue bloater. And again, emphysema is more common than chronic bronchitis. Can have some wheezing and or crackles at the lung bases and other typical signs of respiratory distress as well. So regardless of it's, if it's emphysema or, or chronic bronchitis, treatment is going to be basically the same for us. So again, our treatment of those conditions are classified as treatment for COPD. Same guidelines as any patient suffering from difficulty breathing, including consideration of a bronchodilator administration. So again, most of these conditions are going to produce bronchoconstriction or wheezing. So oftentimes bronchodilators are going to be in the, indicated for uh, uh, exacerbation of COPD. And just remember with COPD patients, they can develop a hypoxic drive. So their stimulus for breathing is the amount of oxygen in the arterial blood. We put them on too high flow of an oxygen, get their O2 sats too high, it can actually reduce their breathing. So our O2 sat goals are a little different for COPDers. It's 88 to 92%. And with most of the time with COPDers, we just keep them on a nasal cannula. Another type of obstructive pulmonary disease, but is not classified as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is asthma. Why it's not COPD? It's because it's an acute spasm. Acute spasms of the bronchioles associated with increased mucus production that results in edema of the airways. And asthma is often triggered by an allergen. Patient gets exposed to that allergen, they start having an asthma attack. If the patient is having a very prolonged, life-threatening asthma attack, we refer to that as status asthmaticus. Status means prolonged. Uh, and again, that is a prolonged, life-threatening asthma attack. So conditions contributing to airflow resistance, narrowing of the bronchioles, we're getting the smooth muscles, they are starting to contract. So the passageway is getting more narrow. At the same time, as those passageways are getting more narrow, they're getting an increase in mucus production as well. So that passageway for air is already getting narrowed because of the constricting uh, smooth muscles. And it's getting even more narrow because now we're getting mucus production as well. So our assessment of the asthma patient. Asthma attacks can either be have a slow onset or a rapid onset. The slower onset cases are the most common. 80% of the cases are categorized as slow onset or they start deteriorating over six hours to even days. This is... Uh, these type of asthma attacks usually are triggered by upper respiratory tract infections and are more common in females compared to males. The rapid onset only accounts for 20% of cases where they start getting bad off within six hours of the onset of the asthma attack. It's usually triggered by allergens or physical stress. 
and for some reason it's more common in males. It's also more dangerous, has a higher mortality rate as well. Again, rapid onset asthma is more likely to result in death than slower onset. And again, anytime we have a patient in respiratory distress, just constant monitoring of their breathing, making sure that we're on the lookout for them to move from respiratory distress to failure or arrest. Critically ill patients require positive pressure ventilation, supplemental oxygen. Again, if they are in failure or arrest, not breathing adequately on their own, we need to ventilate them with the BBM. Presentation-wise, trouble breathing, severe dyspnea, tripod position, and when we listen to lung sounds, we're going to hear wheezing. Our treatment for asthma, again, we start with our primary assessment. Our ABCs are going to take priority, so we ensure those are good. We're going to ensure our supplemental O2 is above 94% or apply supplemental O2. Again, our goal is to maintain SATs above 94. Patients with asthma are air trapping, meaning they're having a hard time getting rid of their inhaled air. So if we are having to ventilate an asthma patient, make sure that we are allowing plenty of time to for exhalation to occur. With asthma, again, we're going to hear wheezing lung sounds, which is an indication of bronchoconstriction, which means the patient needs a bronchodilator or beta-2 agonist via either a handheld nebulizer or, if your protocols indicate, meter dose inhaler, then we do it that way. But the oftentimes, most protocols, the indication to give a breathing treatment is going to be the presence of wheezing. Uh, bronco, a uh, breathing treatment's a bronchodilator, so we give it for bronchoconstriction. Bronchoconstriction, the indication of bronchoconstriction is going to be wheezing. So wheezing is the indication to give a breathing treatment. And if it is a very bad asthma attack, where it's what we classify status asthmaticus, go ahead and call for paramedic backup. Paramedics can give more medications than we can at the basic level to treat a life-threatening asthma attack. Other than that, rapid transport to the hospital. Pneumonia. Pathophysiology of pneumonia. It's acute infectious disease of the lower respiratory tract is going to occur in the lungs. This causes lung inflammation, fluid, or pus-filled alveoli. So it's infiltrating or filling up the alveoli. It's going to lead to ventilation disturbances and poor gas exchange. If there's pus in that alveoli, that gas exchange, that diffusion in that part of where the infection is, is not going to be, is not going to occur very efficiently at all. So again, here's pneumonia. We have our alveoli right here, and you can see it's filling up with pus. And again, the gas exchange through that part of the lung that's infected is going to be very minimal, if any, is going to be able to occur. While we're talking about pus, something very important on your documentation for like run reports or something, you never 
classify or you never document that the wound was pussy because of the spelling, it can be easily construed to something else. So figure out a different way to document. So assessment of pneumonia general, generally appeals here. This is caused by an infection, so they're going to look sick. May complain of fever, severe, severe chills, malaise, loss of appetite, Gen general sensation, not feeling good, cough, trouble breathing, lung sounds. We can hear crackles, typically is what we hear, or diminished lung sounds, localized wheezing just over the area of infiltrates, or bronchi. Treatment for pneumonia, there's not much that we're going to be able to do for pneumonia other than supportive measures. So it's not usually associated with bronchoconstriction. So since there's no bronchoconstriction, a bronchodilator is not going to be effective on this patient. So again, typically no widespread wheezing. So we're typically not giving breathing treatments for suspected pneumonia. Supplemental oxygen to maintain O2 sats at or above 94%. Again, your protocols may something say something different about giving a bronchodilator. However, if there's no bronchoconstriction, bronchodilator is not going to be effective. Other than that, prompt transport to the hospital. So again, for pneumonia, it's going to be supportive measures. ABCs, assessment, transport the patient to the hospital. Well, on the lookout, pneumonia can cause septic shock. So be on the lookout for any indications of shock as well. All right, let's go ahead and stop right here for our last break for the morning. Let's go ahead and moving on to a pulmonary embolism. <clears throat> Pathophysiology of a pulmonary embolism. It's an obstruction of blood flow in the pulmonary arteries normally from a blood clot. So a blood clot breaks free, travels through the body, and lodges itself in one of the pulmonary arteries. Blood clots blocking blood flow to that portion of the lung. <clears throat> and there are several factors that increase the risk of obtaining or getting a pulmonary embolism, including immobility. So if somebody that's bedridden or long travel, they uh, long flights on the road at long periods of time, that does increase the risk of a pulmonary embolism. Risk factors include things like recent surgeries. Again, part of that is because they're typically bedbound or bedridden immediately following the surgery. Prolonged bed rest or immobility, or if the patient has a medical condition that causes unusually fast clotting blood. Certain medications can also increase the risk of pulmonary embolisms as well. Certain birth control pills, for example, have been known to increase the risk of a pulmonary embolism. And a PE is a true life-threatening emergency, and it can kill a patient extremely quickly as well. So again, a blood clot, air bubble, fat particle, foreign body, or even possibly amniotic fluid during delivery or childbirth 
can work its way in the circulatory system, can lodge itself in that lung, can cause an embolism. And again, blocking blood through a pulmonary artery. So again, you can see in this case, that pulmonary artery right here has that large clot in it. So this entire portion of the lung from here, basically down, whatever that artery is feeding, is not getting blood. So no oxygen exchange, gas exchange is occurring in the alveoli at, at those areas because there's no blood circulating to that area. Assessment of a pulmonary embolism, sudden onset of unexplained dyspnea and chest pain. All of a sudden, they're one second, they're fine. All of a sudden, their chest is hurting and they're having an extremely hard time breathing. Signs of hypoxia, they're cyanotic. They are having a hard time breathing, but when we look, listen to lung sounds, the lung sounds sound absolutely fine. They're not diminished. They sound full. No abnormal sounds. And again, most of the time, most common cause of a pulmonary embolism is a blood clot that started somewhere else, broke free, and traveled to the lungs. So we're going to also assess for DVTs, deep vein thrombosis. Most common place you're going to get a DVT is going to be the calf. So any suspected pulmonary embolism, we need to check the calves. Check for distal pulses. Temperature. If a patient does have a DVT, that area over the calf is typically going to be hotter to the touch than the rest of the body. Swelling, tenderness to that area, reddening of the skin to that area as well. Treatment for a pulmonary embolism. There is absolutely nothing we're going to be able to do for a pulmonary embolism to treat the pulmonary embolism. So treatment is going to be, is going to be supportive measures is about all we're going to be able to do. So there's nothing we can do for the clot, so we have to be aggressive with the management of the airway. Open the airway. If the patient's not breathing adequately, provide positive pressure ventilation. Maintain O2 sats at or above 94% or better. Again, if we suspect a pulmonary embolism, make sure that we're assessing for a DVT. And then rapid transport to the hospital. Patient is either going to need clot-busting type of medications, or more than likely some type of surgery to get rid of the clot. And again, pulmonary embolism can kill a patient very quickly as well. Patient may be fine one minute, all of a sudden that blood clot breaks free. If it's large enough, they can almost instantaneously go into respiratory arrest and then cardiac arrest. Again, this is very life-threatening condition. Um, the mom, the I'm sorry, my kid's mom, my ex-wife, actually died from a pulmonary embolism. She had a clotting disorder that caused her blood to clot too quickly. She was in the hospital for something completely unrelated through blood clot, pulmonary embolism, and was in cardiac arrest within a matter of minutes. So again, this is very, uh, can be very life-threatening very quickly for a patient. Another condition is acute pulmonary edema. Patho of acute pulmonary edema occurs when excessive fluid collects between the alveoli and the pulmonary capillaries. Number one cause or the main cause of pulmonary edema is actually a heart-related issue, congestive heart failure, for example. So the heart is failing, can't keep up with the demand of fluid of blood, so it starts backing up. 
One area where it can back up is in between the capillaries and the alveoli. It can actually infiltrate and get into the alveoli as well. Results in hypoxia. And during this time, gas exchange obviously is going to be impaired. So this is what that pulmonary edema looks like. Here on the left side, we have normal. You notice that those capillaries are butted up right directly with that alveoli. So in this case, the patient is having left-sided heart failure. So the blood is backing up into the lungs and we're getting that fluid in between the alveoli and those capillaries. So that's gonna reduce gas exchange. Not only does it have to, that gas exchange has to occur through a liquid, but it's also increasing the distance that that gas exchange, that diffusion has to occur as well. So again, it can dramatically reduce the amount of gas exchange that's occurring. So assessment for acute pulmonary edema. Telltale sign of pulmonary edema is gonna be listening to lung sounds and we're gonna hear crackles, rails in the lungs. It's gonna have those wet sounding lung sounds. And again, with pulmonary edema, we typically are going to hear that in the lower lobes first. So make sure that we're doing paying close attention to those lower lobes when we're auscultating lung sounds. Anxiety, combativeness, and confusion may also complicate the assessment. Again, if we're depriving that brain of oxygen, we're going to start having altered mental status, including things like combativeness. Our treatment for pulmonary edema. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, we're going to provide positive pressure ventilations. Consider ALS backup. The device CPAP may be beneficial, and this is where CPAP, continuous positive airway pressures, work wonderfully. It's really designed to fix is pulmonary edema. So patients with significant trouble breathing with pulmonary edema, they are gonna be a candidate for CPAP. Oftentimes that does require ALS backup to apply CPAPs, request them early. Supplemental O2 to maintain O2 sets at or above 94%. And we wanna keep the patient sitting in an upright position. If the patient's breathing adequately on their own for any respiratory distress, we're gonna put them in the position of comfort. All of their position of comfort for respiratory stress is probably going to be sitting upright. But if we lay that patient down, if they're having fluid getting into their lungs and we lay that patient down, now it's not being held at the bottoms as, as easily by, by gravity. So that fluid is actually going to kind of disperse over a wider area of the lungs, making their trouble breathing actually worse. So especially for pulmonary edema, keep them sitting upright. Other than that, it's going to be prompt transport. So again, basically for pulmonary edema at the basic level, especially, it's probably it's primarily going to be supportive measures. Ensure their ABCs, good oxygenation, transport them to the hospital, request ALS backup. Spontaneous pneumothorax. Say sudden rupture of the visceral lining of the lungs. Remember, it's the visceral lining that's making contact with the lungs itself, which is partially collapsing of a lung. So with a spontaneous pneumothorax, the patient has a weakened portion of the lung known as a bleb that ruptures. So basically the lung has a little hole in it. That lung tissue ruptures, the, the lining, the 
<clears throat> visceral lining of the pleura ruptures. Now air is getting sucked into that thoracic cavity, causing the lung to collapse. So a spontaneous pneumothorax is just a collapsed lung caused by ruptured lung tissue. Very important. Spontaneous pneumothoraxes are not caused by trauma. If it was trauma causing the pneumothorax, it would just be referred to as a pneumothorax. But a spontaneous pneumothorax, there's no trauma involved. Again, air accumulates in the pleural space. Air is getting sucked out of the lung every time that patient breathes. More air is getting moved into that pleural space, increasing that pressure, causing the lung to collapse. Well, if that lung is totally collapsed, obviously air exchange is going to suck in that lung. Risk factors for patients that are more prone to getting spontaneous pneumothoraxes include smokers, if they have a connective tissue disease, and COPDers are more prone to getting spontaneous pneumothoraxes as well. Again, we have a ruptured bleb, a piece of lung tissue, a weakened lung tissue ruptures. Air is able to escape the lung, move into that pleural space, and it's going to start putting pressure on the lung, causing that lung to collapse. Air is going to rise. So we're going to start hearing diminished lungs. The lung is going to start collapsing from the top going down. So we'll hear diminished lung sounds in the upper lobe before we hear it in the lower lobe. Primary spontaneous pneumothorax occurs in patients who have no underlying lung disease. This mostly occurs in teenage years to early 20s in persons who are thin and tall, much more common in male patients as well. So spontaneous pneumothorax, we have a healthy person, again, and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, a portion of their lung tissue ruptures. A secondary Spontaneous pneumothorax occurs in patients in which there is an underlying lung disease, such as COPD. So again, secondary, they have some type of lung problem. They're already prone to it, and it, it happens. It's also can refer to a, a repeat from a previous pneumothorax. So let's say our guy up here in his teens, tall, thin guy, has a spontaneous pneumothorax. That's that primary. They treat him. It heals up. He's good to go. A few years later, because that lung tissue was previously damaged, it's going to be a little weaker than the rest of the lung tissue. If it ruptures again, at that point, it's, it's going to be considered a secondary spontaneous pneumon. Does that really matter too much for us for treatment lines? No, we don't really care. Treatment's going to be the exact same. Presentation's going to be the exact same. So assessment. Spontaneous pneumothorax shows with sudden onset of shortness of breath, sharp chest pain, without evidence of trauma, and the big sign is decreased breath sounds on one side to completely absent breath sounds on, on one side, depending on how far along it's progressed. We auscultate with the lung stethoscope, we hear diminished or absent lung sounds on the uppers, diminished on the lowers, or we listen and we don't hear nothing on that side of the chest. Again, when seated, absent breath sounds will be heard at the apexes or the top of the lungs because that air rises and it will start collapsing the lung from the top working down. Other than that, it's going to be classic signs and symptoms of shortness of breath. So again, it kind of reiterates the importance of lung sounds if we're dealing with a complaint of dyspnea. That is how we're going to narrow down or determine what is going on with the patient 
is by listening to lung sounds, also by getting history. Treatment for a spontaneous pneumothorax. Again, not much we can do at the basic level. It's going to require mainly going to be supportive and ALS backup. Oxygen supplemental two to maintain O2 sats at or above 94%. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, poor rate and or poor tidal volume, we're going to ventilate the patient with a BVM. Anytime we're ventilating a patient with a spontaneous pneumothorax with a BVM, we have to be very cautious. Just enough tidal volume necessary to get chest rise on the good side. Any excess tidal volume, if we're squeezing too much air into that chest cavity, where do you think it's going to go in that pneumothorax? We're just putting more air into that pleural space. We're making the pneumothorax worse. So we just got to be very cautious about ventilating a patient with a collapsed lung. Consider ALS backup if it gets extremely difficult to ventilate or we start getting tracheal deviation. So left lung, left lung is collapsed. We, we're ventilating the patient. It's very hard for us to bag. We're meeting a lot of resistance. We check that trachea. We notice that trachea is now getting pushed to the right away from the injured side. Those are indications that that pneumothorax has turned into a tension pneumothorax, and that's an immediate life threat. So ALS backup, either an advanced or a paramedic, they can go in there and do a pleural decompression. They're going to stick a long 14-gauge needle into their chest to relieve that buildup of pressure. So we want to call ALS before it gets to the tension pneumo. So as soon as we think it's a pneumothorax, contact ALS backup just in case it turns into a tension pneumo. CPAP is going to be contraindicated for pneumothoraxes. That CPAP, that positive pressure, is just going to make that pneumothorax worse a lot quicker. Turn it into that tension pneumothorax pretty quick as well. Hyperventilation syndrome. It's associated with emotional upset, excitation, and panic attacks. So when I'm talking about hyperventilation syndrome, I'm talking about an anxiety attack. So patients having major anxiety, they start breathing faster and deeper than normal. So they're hyperventilating to kypnic. They're blowing off all of their carbon dioxide. So their CO2 levels are actually going to drop. And once we start getting rid of all that carbon dioxide, we can get things that like muscle cramps or spasms may occur in the feet and the hands. Their hands maybe kind of looks like they're contracted. Their muscles are spasms. They can do it in their feet as well. If it's in both hands and feet, it's carpal pedal spasms. If it's only in the hands, it's carp uh, carpal. If it's only in the feet, it's pedal spasms. Assessment. Patient with true Hyperventilation syndrome is an emotionally charged situation. Again, it's an anxiety attack. However, and again, they're typically benign. We get the patient to calm down, get them to slow their breathing down, they're gonna, their signs and symptoms are going to go away. However, and the problem with this is that an anxiety attack, some of their complaints can mimic the complaints, say things like a heart attack. They're breathing fast. They tend to complain of chest pain and tightness. So signs can mimic a MI, anxiety, stressful situation. They can get numbness in their finger, fingers or in their arms, a sense of dysthymia, trouble breathing despite rapid breathing, 
dizziness, tingling in the hands and feet, as well. Again, they can even can complain of chest pain. So treatment. Primary treatment plan is to calm the patient and get them to slow their breathing. So we're going to coach the patient. We're going to talk to the patient. Hey, I want you to take a deep breath in. I want you to hold it for four to five seconds or as long as you can. And then I want you to let it out slowly. I want you to pay close attention to your breathing. We need you to get you need to get you to slow your breathing down. Administer oxygen, SpO2 sats are less. Uh, if the SpO2 sats are less than 94, if it's a true anxiety attack, their O2 sats are going to be 100 because they're breathing breathing fast and rapid and there's no problems going on inside the body. Something that we never do, we do not have the patient breathe into a paper bag unless we are directed to do so by medical direction. And you'll see that on TV all the time. Patient breathes into that paper bag with, during an anxiety attack and it makes them feel better. It does work. They're, what's why it works is they're breathing into that paper bag. And now when they're breathing back in, they're breathing in some of that exhaled carbon dioxide. So we're actually increasing CO2 levels. However, the problem is, is again, if it's not truly an anxiety attack and something else is going on for the patient, by having them rebreathe their carbon dioxide, we can actually be causing more problems, making their conditions worse. So that is something that we never do. And not only that, it doesn't look very professional to whip out a paper bag and tell them to breathe into this. So again, that's something that we never do. Epiglottitis. Pathophysiology, anytime you see itis, I-T-I-S, at the end of a word, that means inflammation of something. In this case, epiglottis. Epiglottitis is a bacterial infection of the epiglottis that leads to swelling that swelling of the epiglottis can totally obstruct a patient's airway. Much more prevalent in pediatrics, but we are seeing uh, indications that adult onset epiglottitis has been increasing. And males and those that smoke are going to be more commonly affected in the adult age group. So again, it's just an inflammation, swelling of the epiglottis, swells to a large enough that it prevents airflow from getting into the trachea or at minimum is reducing the amount of air that's getting into the trachea. Assessment, things that we're gonna see in a patient that's presenting with epiglottitis, oftentimes it's gonna start as an infection somewhere else and then kind of progress into epiglottitis. So these patients tend to have a upper respiratory infection, usually a day or two before the onset of the difficulty breathing. Since we're getting swelling right there at the larynx, we're gonna hear stridorous respirations, that harsh high-pitched sound heard during inspiration that is an indication of an almost completely occluded airway. So if we do hear strider, if it's bad enough to produce strider, we know it's a pretty significant obstruction. Again, this is caused by an infection, so the patients often present with very high fevers, sore throat, pharyngeal pain, throat pain to the back of the throat, inability to swallow and drooling. Again, the epiglottis is swelling, so it may be very difficult for them to swallow. Not only that, it's going to be very tender, so every time they do swallow, it may be extremely painful for the patient, especially true for little kiddos. So instead of swallowing, they're just letting it run out their mouth. So drooling is very common with epiglottitis as well. 
treatment, we're going to administer supplemental O2, high concentrations of O2. Again, there's not much we can do for the swelling, so we're going to just try to do what we can to ensure they're getting enough oxygen. Try to keep the patient calm and comfortable, especially true with pediatrics. Let mom or dad hold the kiddo for as long as possible. Get them, try to keep them to remain calm. With epiglottitis or suspected epiglottitis, we do not want to visualize the airway. We're not going to put a tongue depressor or try to look inside that patient's mouth or put anything in the mouth. Putting something into the patient's mouth can cause spasms and cause that airway to totally occlude on the patient. If we do have to ventilate the patient, we want to squeeze the bag slowly. We don't want to do it too forcefully because, again, if we do it too forcefully, that epiglottis is already irritated and cause major swelling, the swelling to become worse. And if we do suspect epiglottitis, it's so supportive measures and it's going to be rapid transport to the hospital. Not extremely common, but we do see it. Pertussis. Anybody know what pertussis is? Pertussis is the fancy word term for the whooping cough. So pathophysiology, it's a contagious disease characterized by an uncontrollable cough followed by a whooping sound. So it's whooping cough. Similar to epiglottitis, patients that get pertussis, it tends to start off as an upper respiratory infection or a cold. Then two weeks later, they start coughing heavily to the point where they're totally getting rid of all the air in their lungs, and then they're trying to catch their breath between coughs, causing the whooping sound. And severe complications to pertussis can be fatal for a patient. There are three different stages to pertussis. Stage one is going to be the cold or the upper respiratory infection that uh, started before the whooping cough. Stage two is now the patient that's coughing heavily, starting to have that whooping cough sound, and they are to the point where they're going to seek medical treatment. And stage three is the recovery stage. They're starting to get better, and this can be gradual, taking several weeks before a patient fully recovers from pertussis. So the assessment. Again, they're going to have a respiratory infection, cough, cloak, cold beforehand. With pertussis, the cough tends to be worse at night than it is during the day. May have a low-grade fever, kind of cold-like symptoms. And that telltale inspiratory whoop. And if you never heard pertussis, uh, it's kind of one of those sounds, once you hear it, you're never going to forget what it sounds like. You hear whooping cough. And other signs and symptoms of respiratory distress. Treatment, again, this is highly contagious. So we need to take some PPE. Surgical mask on the patient. I tend to kind of disagree with that because if the patient's having trouble breathing, they need supplemental O2. So a surgical mask, probably not going to be placed on them. Putting them on a non-rebreather, though, is almost as good as a surgical mask. That non-rebreather will catch droplets, etc. Position them comfortably, try to keep them calm. If they get upset, agitated, it's going to make their breathing worse because they're going to cough more, whoop more, get hypoxic faster. Supplemental oxygen, O2 sats at or above 94. 
And it says to encourage the patient to cough up mucus. The patient's not going to need any encouragement to cough. That's what they're going to be doing pretty heavily. So there is a vaccine for pertussis. Has anybody had it? Every single one of you has had it. Your DTAP, your tetanus, the P in your DTAP is pertussis. So everybody in here has had the pertussis vaccine. Uh, and again, so there is a vaccine for it, immunization for it. Pertussis was almost eradicated. We're starting to see the growing anti-vax movements. So it's starting to become more and more prevalent than it was, making a comeback. Cystic fibrosis, terrible disease, also known as CF, abbreviated, mucovidosis, mucovoidosis. It's a hereditary disease affecting lungs, digestive system, and sweat glands. So what cystic fibrosis does, it, change, it results in changes in the mucus secreting glands of the lungs. So they're producing a lot of mucus, causing mucus plugs, infections. Patients that are diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, they typically die of it early in young adulthood, usually from pulmonary failure. What causes that pulmonary failure? They get that, those thick mucus production, repeated respiratory infections, and it's just wearing out that lung tissue. So again, they tend to die 18, 19, 20, 21, early 20s of cystic fibrosis. And oftentimes what they, these patients need is that they need a full lung transplant. Luckily for us, cystic fibrosis is a disease they often screen for newborns or even during pregnancy, they can screen for cystic fibrosis. So if we're dealing with a cystic fibrosis patient, especially in the United States, we're probably gonna know from family or et cetera that they have a history of it. Oh, I messed that up, didn't I? Recurrent coughing of thick mucus, malaise, weakness, GI complaints of diarrhea. Again, not only does it affect the lungs, it affects the digestive and sweat glands. Malnutrition and dehydration are common with this patient, these patients as well. So treatment, again, is going to be nothing but supportive. There's nothing that we're going to be able to do for a patient with cystic fibrosis other than supportive of the ABCs and transport. It is better for them to have humidified supplemental O2, maintain SATs at or above 94%. Patients not breathing adequately on their own, ventilate them with the BBM. Uh, and again, other than that, there's not much else we can do, provide prompt transport to the hospital. Poisonous exposures. There are literally thousands of poisons that can harm the human body. Specifically in this chapter, we're going to be talking about inhaled poisonings. So the inhalation of toxins leads to hypoxia by various mechanisms. So we're breathing in a substance other than oxygen. It can kill us in a few ways. Depending on what that substance is, as we breathe that in, it can cause upper airway swelling to the point where it totally occludes our airway. Displacement of oxygen in the atmosphere. We're breathing in that poisonous substance such as carbon monoxide instead of oxygen. That carbon monoxide is totally taking the place of the oxygen. It can also cause damage to the alveoli. It doesn't really cause irritation going in, but as it gets into the alveoli and is trying to diffuse across the membranes, now it's damaging our alveoli. 
And once it works its way into the blood supply and then gets circulated to the rest of the body, once it's in the blood supply, it can have other effects on our body as well. So assessment for poisonous inhaled exposures. Critical determinants when we're talking about inhaled poisonings, things that we need to know. The length of the exposure, how long were they in that poisonous environment? How, how long were they breathing that poisonous gas, air, whatever the case may be? We also want to know if it was in an open or enclosed space. Enclosed spaces, we're really going to worry about. There was no oxygen in that environment, no oxygen at all. It's been totally displaced. In an open environment, at least they possibly were getting some fresh oxygenated air as well. We've got to exercise great personal caution when entering the scene of a potential toxic inhalation. If there's any doubt whether what's going on or not, don't enter, stay back, allow trained personnel to retreat the patient. And again, if it's an inhaled poisoning, fire department's going to probably do the rescue and they're probably going to be wearing SCBAs. So the assessment, we want to know what were they exposed to, the history. Was it in a house fire, an industrial accident, et cetera? During our assessment, looking at the patient, some indications, we may see chemicals around their face that indicates that, hey, they probably breathed in something. Resp oftentimes can present with respiratory distress, can have a cough because it's, ir it's irritating the lungs, the larynx, strider if it's causing swelling to that upper airway. At the larynx, it can cause strider. In the lungs, it can cause wheezing, crackles. You can have a wide range of lung sounds from a poisonous exposure. Cyanosis or other skin color changes as well. Depending on what that substance is, you may also have an increase in secretions as well. If it was like an organophosphate or like a nerve agent, they may be having massive secretions coming from their mouth, nose, eyes, everywhere. Treatment for a poison exposure, they need to be rescued. They need to get out of that environment to limit the exposure to the toxin. If it is a substance that we're worried about getting from the patient, like organophosphates or other poisons, they need to be de decontaminated before they, we take care of them, especially before we load them in our enclosed space of the truck. Again, fire department typically handles decon of a patient as well. Supportive measures, we're going to open the airway. If there is massive secretions, we're going to take steps to suction out the secretions as needed. Position of comfort. They're breathing adequately on their own. We're going to put them on oxygen 15 liters per minute via non-rebreathing. Again, this is another one of those uh, conditions where we don't care about O2 sets at all. If it was an inhaled poison and they need oxygen, they get placed on non-rebreather 15 liters per minute. If they're not breathing adequately, we ventilate them with the BVM. BVM is going to be hooked up to high flow oxygen. We try to gather as much information that we can about the poison, if we know what it is, and rapid transport to the hospital. Again, this does include if the patient was in a burning building from carbon monoxide exposure as well. Viral respiratory infections. Includes things like colds, flus, bronchiolitis. 
normally upper respiratory infections, URIs, but can be lower infections as well as in pneumonia and croup. They're usually mild, but significant infections can occur. Most of the times colds, flu, even bronchiolitis doesn't require emergency care. They need a doctor in some cases. But again, they can potentially worsen to the point where they can be life-threatening. Maybe highly contagious. The flu is pretty contagious. So again, this is something that we need to be worried about, concerned about. These are viral infections. So antibiotics does not work on viral infections. So they just oftentimes have to run their course. There are some antiviral medications depending on when it was caught and so forth, but healthy individuals, typically viral infections, you, your body just has to deal with it. And it runs its course within 14 days. For us, when we're going to get involved or get really concerned about it is if it's leading to dyspnea, respiratory distress, and if it, the patient starts becoming hypoxic, in that case, we're just going to treat it like we would any other respiratory distress, auscultation of lung sounds, supplemental O2, transport to the hospital. It's probably about all we're going to be able to do. There is wheezing present, then we could possibly give a breathing treatment. In treatment, supportive, maintain O2 sats at or above 94. Supplemental oxygen, occasionally may need to ventilate the patient with the BVM. Again, these are infections, so they may be accompanied by a fever. Again, we don't really consider it a fever until it gets above 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. If your protocols allow you to treat the fever with ibuprofen or acetaminophen, antipyretic medications, and we can give them those medications as well. A patient that is running a fever is known to be febrile. If they're not running a fever, they are afebrile. The A in front of the word medical terminology means without. So afebrile without a fever. Contact ALS for medication administration in patients with potential deterioration. Again, very rare, bad cases. You may need paramedic backup. All right, moving on to our bronchodilators, the medication that we can use to treat some of these respiratory distress emergencies. So again, there's two ways that we could potentially give a bronchodilator to a patient. It's either through a meter dose inhaler or rescue inhaler or it's through a small volume nebulizer breathing treatment. By far, the most common is gonna be a breathing treatment through a small volume nebulizer. So how do they work? Well, the bronchodilators, they relax those smooth muscles that are wrapped around the bronchioles. And during bronchoconstriction, those muscles are tightened, narrowing down the bronchiole. Bronchodilators release those muscles, causing those, the bronchioles to dilate. Medication is dispensed as an aerosol or mist that the patient inhales. So again, the patient is inhaling this medication. And the good thing about bronchodilators is they begin to work almost immediately. Once it's breathed in, we're going to start, if it's going to work, we tend to start seeing pretty quick effect. Again, the protocols may indicate that we give a breathing, or I'm sorry, a bronchodilator through a meter dose inhaler, especially with pediatrics. They may want us to use the spacer chambers. More frequently, we're going to use small volume nebulizers. So common medications, breathing treatments that we do give, albuterol is probably the most common 
actual bronchodilator that we give. Levi-albuterol or Zopinex is another bronchodilator. So ipotropium is not technically a bronchodilator. It's an anticholinergic that's actually going to help dry up the secretions. And again, in this region, we give a medication known as a duoneb that, in, that has ipotropium bromide and albuterol. So it's working two ways on the patient. It's causing the bronchioles to dilate, and the apotropium is causing that increased mucus production to dry up as well. So it's a, it's a great drug. Metaproternolol uh, is another one that's not very common. Again, albuterol, duoneb in this region is by far the most common. Both SPIMs and UMCMS, their breathing treatments are duoneb. So the indications, when should we give a patient a bronchodilator? Well, this is a drug used to treat respiratory distress, so they need to be having respiratory distress before we give it. And again, oftentimes wheezing must be present. Wheezing is the indication of bronchoconstriction. Bronchodilators treat bronchoconstriction. So most protocols are going to dictate that wheezing needs to be present before we give them a bronchodilator. Binational registry, we may have to assist a patient taking their own medication. So the patient, if that's the case, the patient already has to have a physician-prescribed drug. And regardless, we have to have this in our protocols. Either we're assisting with the medication administration or we're giving it ourselves from our stock. We have to have some type of med control. Contraindications. When should we not give them bronchodilators? Especially with a meter dose inhaler, the patient, if the patient is not response enough to use the medication, bronchodilators, they have to take deep breaths in and hold their breath with a meter dose inhaler. So if they're unresponsive, meter dose inhaler is out the window. Now we may still be able to give them a nebulized medication and actually bag it in with a BVM. Again, if we're assisting in medications and they don't have the prescription or they have a rescue inhaler, but it's not prescribed to them, it's prescribed to their husband, we can't give them that medication. We don't have orders to give the medication or following the prescription, the patient has already taken the maximum number of doses that they are allowed to take by the prescription, maybe three, four, maybe one every two hours, whatever the case may be. So some common side effects from a bronchodilator. Tachycardia is probably the most common side effect. It's going to increase heart rate. It can also cause muscle tremors. They can patient may complain of feeling real shaky. We look at their hands and we notice that it's shaking. Nervousness, dry mouth. Some severe cases can cause nausea and vomiting on the patient as well. So again, we'll have some side effects. Typically, the side effects are really nothing to worry about. So using a meter dose inhaler, the process, the steps to give a patient a meter dose inhaler. Again, we have to have med control in order to do, to do this. Again, maybe in the order of standing protocols, or we have to get on the radio. We're going to check the medication. We want to make sure it is the correct medication that we've been ordered to give. 
We want to make sure that it is, in this case, prescribed to our patient, and we want to make sure that it's not expired as well. We're going to have to shake an inhaler for at least 30 seconds before we can administer it. So make sure it's shaked, shooken up very well. At that point, we're going to put the inhaler inside the patient's mouth, and we're going to instruct the patient to inhale slowly and deeply for about five seconds. So we want them to inhale extremely slowly. As the patient begins to inhale, we're going to depress the canister. We're going to depress the canister, give them the medication. After we depress the canister, we remove the, the canister, and we instruct the patient to hold their breath as, for 10 seconds or as long as it's comfortable to do so. And then we instruct them to exhale slowly through pursed lips. And all we're trying to do is making sure that we're giving that medication an opportunity to get as deep as it can to work as much as it can before the patient breathes out. So we need to talk or tell the patient the steps of this before we actually administer, before we actually do it. So I'm going to get the medication. I'm going to check the expiration date, make sure it's the right medication. It's prescribed to the patient. I'm going to shake it up. Then I'm going to instruct the patient, hey, we're going to give you a puff of your inhaler. What I need you to do is I'm going to put the inhaler in your mouth. I want you to form a good seal around the inhaler with your lips. And then I want you to take a nice, slow, deep breath. While you're taking that breath in, I'm going to go ahead and give you the medication, and then I'm going to remove the inhaler. After you get done inhaling, I want you to hold your breath for as long as you can, then exhale slowly through pursed lips. You understand? Yep. You ready to go? All right, here we go. So again, we want to explain this procedure to the patient before we actually go through with it. So again, they know what's expected of them. If they're on oxygen, if they were on a non-rebreather, we had to take it off to give them the meter dose inhaler, put the non-rebreather back on them. If they're on the cannula, they'll just leave the cannula in place throughout the entire thing. And after we give that uh, puff, we need to reassess the patient. Check their lung sounds. Does that help with the wheezing in? Check their O2 sats. Is their O2 sats starting to increase? Ask the patient, hey, did that rescue inhaler help you breathing any? Or are you having an easier time breathing? And a full set of vital signs are going to be done as well. Again, don't do that too frequently in EMS. If it has a spacer, after shaking the medication, remove the spacer cap, attach the spacer to the inhaler mouthpiece so that the spacer a lot of times is actually a holding chamber. So we're actually going to go ahead and depress the medication to fill up the chamber. And then we're going to put it into the patient's mouth. Instruct the patient to inhale slowly and deeply. A lot of these spacers will have a uh, will make a whistling sound if the patient is inhaling too fast. So if they're if we hear that whistle, tell them to slow down on their inhale. And again, at that point, it's the exact same process. Hold it in your hold your breath for about ten seconds or as long as comfortable, and then exhale slowly through pursed lips. So do's and don'ts of a meter dose inhaler. We, do, we are going to instruct the patient to breathe in slowly and deeply. Make sure they're breathing in through their mouth to ensure that they're actually getting the medication. We do have to shake the canister for at least 30 seconds before removing the cap. If that the inhaler has been sitting there for a while as well, after we get done shaking it, we need to prime it. So we're just going to off to the side depress it a couple of times until we're getting full squirts of the medication. And all we're doing 
is just ensuring that when we give it to the patient, they are getting the full dose. Again, we're going to depress the canister as the patient begins to inhale. Have the patient hold their breath for as long as comfortable, at least 10 seconds. Spacer, preferably a valved holding chamber device if available, use that. Especially for pediatrics, tend where we tend to where we see those. The don'ts are basically the opposites of the do's. We don't want to let the patient breathe in too quickly. Don't allow the patient to breathe in through their nose when they're not getting any medication. Again, don't administer the medication or don't forget about shaking the medication. Depress the canister. Don't depress the canister before the patient inhales. And don't forget to coach the patient to hold their breath as long as possible after we give them the medication. Patient may experience a variety of side effects from the medication. The most common, again, is going to be an increased heart rate, heart rate, tremors, and just that sense of anxiety and nervousness. Tell the patient, hey, that's normal. It'll go away after that, as that medication kind of wears out, works its way through your system. Just concentrate on your breathing, deep, slow breaths, you'll be okay. Nebulized medication. Again, this is a lot more common than what we're going to do in the pre-hospital setting. So again, this is going to be done during the secondary assessment in most cases. So we're going to go ahead and do our primary assessment first. Make sure that we auscultate those lung sounds. We hear wheezing we're gonna have orders to give our breathing treatment about either standing orders or contacting med control. Make sure that we grab the correct medication out of our pack. If you're carrying more than one breathing treatment, again, it may, they may all look very identical. So double check your label. Make sure that it's not expired. Expiration dates on these nebules are typically written down here at the bottom and they're pretty hard to see. We're also going to look at the drug, make sure that the seal is not broken, make sure it's clear in color, nothing is floating in the breathing treatment as well. So after we assure the medications are all right, now we're going to add that medication to our nebulized chamber. And then we're going to assemble the nebulizer. They are going to come disassembled. So... The slides, I think, got out of order because it said to put it in the chamber first. If it was in the chamber right now, we'd be pouring it all over the floor or on our patient. So if, if medication's in here, just make sure that's sitting upright. So we got to make sure that we're putting this together right. So we have the chamber, the lid to the chamber, right on the lid goes the T-connection. One side of the T-connection goes the mouthpiece. The other side goes the plastic tubing. And then the oxygen tubing goes on the very bottom. Again, we talked about, and the slides really don't mention this, but remember, before we give any medications to a patient, we have to ask about allergies. So we're going to ask, hey, I've been ordered to administer you Duoneb, which is albuterol and ipratropium. Are you allergic to any one of those medications? Nope. All right, here we go. So with this nebulizer, we're going to have the patient hold it, if they can, insert the mouthpiece into their mouth, and we're going to coach them to breathe in deeply. Breathe in deep through your mouth, out through your nose. After the medication is done, we can turn it off, put them back on non-rebreather if they were already on it, if they're in a cannula, just leave the cannula going throughout the entire time. And then we're going to reassess the patient. Breathing treatments are going to take a few minutes in order for them to, to be done. It's going to take time to fully administer it. 
And oftentimes you can actually, you will hear the changes, the sound that the nebulizer is making that's going to indicate that it is out. Adver, a special note on things like Adver. Adver is not for emergency use. This is not a uh, bronchio bronchodilator. Adver is a long-acting drug that also contains a steroid that is used as a maintenance drug. Many of the patients that are on Adver take them daily or ever so often, mainly for that steroid that's going to prevent them from having an asthma attack. So since it's not a rescue inhaler, it's not a bronchodilator, don't give it to a patient during an acute attack. It's not going to do anything. All right. Albuterol. Another name for albuterol is venolin. Again, one of the most common bronchodilators used in EMS. There are some precautions. These now those ain't contraindications. This is something that we need to keep in mind. We got to be a little cautious using it on these patients. So think about the side effects of albuterol. Mainly, rapid heart rate is the one that we're really concerned about. Well, if we're increasing the heart rate, we're making that work heart work harder. So if the patient has heart problems, cardiovascular disease, they have a weakened heart, by making it work harder, we could potentially cause problems. Again, most of the time, that's, it's not a contraindication. We're still going to give the medication. We just need to pay close attention and evaluate our patient. Same thing is true with patients with high blood pressure. The dosage of albuterol, common dose of albuterol by itself is two and a half milligrams, 2.5 milligrams in three cc's of normal saline. And most of the time it's already pre-mixed in a nebule. So all we have to do is open the nebule and pour the entire thing into our nebulizer. But that's the normal dose, two and a half milligrams and three cc's of normal saline. Pediatric dose may be different. So if there is different, we need to know that. In this region, the pediatric dose is the exact same. Another common one is Zopinex or Leva albuterol. Precautions are the exact same as albuterol, cardiovascular disease, issue of high blood pressure. Dosage is a little bit different. Dosage for Zopinex is 1.25 milligrams and three cc's normal saline, just like albuterol. This typically comes pre-mixed in a nebule. And just like albuterol, Zopinex, the pediatric dose in this region anyway, is the exact same. Again, in this region, this is what we're going to give. This is what you're going to be given during clinicals. It's Duonet. Again, it's a combination of two drugs, hypotropian bromide and albuterol. The doses, since there's two drugs, there's two doses that we have to remember. So it is 0.5 milligrams of hypotropian bromide and three milligrams of albuterol, again, mixed in three cc's of normal saline. Again, apotropium is not a bronchodilator. The apotropium dries up secretions. Precautions is same as albuterol. Albuterol is in it, so the same precautions are going to apply. That apotropium doesn't change any of our precautions. Again, the dosage 0.5 milligrams of apotropium, three milligrams of albuterol in three cc's normal saline, 
Again, these do come pre-mixed, so it's all already in one container. Just open up the container, pour the entire thing in there. Pediatric dose, again, is the exact same in this region as it is for adults. You need to know, not necessarily for the written test, but for skills and for clinicals, you do need to know the normal dosage doses of these medications. All right, probably the best place to go ahead and stop it.